0: Welcome, from Alpha to Omega. Omega.
1: Hello, and welcome to the 78th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Tuesday, the 28th of March, 2017, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, I'm delighted to welcome back alexander douglas to the show alex is a lecturer in philosophy at saint andrews university and is the author of the philosophy of debt this show digs a bit deeper into the murky world of a possible synthesis between mmt and marxist economics we discuss the problems an inflationary crisis poses to mmt the stability of mmt and the job guarantee under times of duress and Kaleski's class-based critique of full employment policies. We also discuss Keynesian accounting identities, what they mean for Marx's ideas about profits-driving investment, and the impact of government investment upon our understanding of Marxist economics. But before all that spine-tingling stuff, I have a few people to thank. First off, the once-off donation from Alex V., the new monthly subscriber Jeffrey M, and of course all you monthly subscribers, very much appreciated. Must also thank the new iTunes reviewer DJA Praise, and the following new YouTube subscribers: Alex QQ14 Dopez, Gun Lobby, Chris Tomlinson, Tom P Mahoney One, Sick Derek, Adrian Thornton, Paul Doherty. DM Palmer, Red Flag, Yenemster, Whitmer Warham, Stephen C.M., Derek Penner, Mash Finch, Harrison Karlovich, Beamfunk, Zigogo, Linus Hermanson, Aggressive Ruby, Pooya 666 Mavk, Mr. Fudgefox, Christopher Carroll, and Olga Natovna. If you would like to leave a comment about the show, please try and leave them on the YouTube episode. And I will do my best to respond to it within a finite time. And remember, please like, subscribe, share, tweet or leave a review for the show over on iTunes. It really helps spread the word. So, to the interview. So, Alex, we, we had a previous episode we had C. Derek Farran on where we had a discussion about MMT and Marx and where we think they differ or where we think there are problems, say, with what perhaps MMT people say about MMT and its chances for creating a stable system. So if we look back to the last time there was a kind of an acceptance of Keynesianism in the post-war period, come the 1970s with uh, problems with profitability and an inflation shock primarily from the oil crises, we saw a breakdown in the keynesian policies that were in place at the time was the previous keynesian solution was it kind of an mmt solution of sorts um
0: i think that most mmt people would say no because you did have this aggregate demand management strategy we're using fiscal policy to make up for gaps in aggregate demand but it wasn't specifically targeted at employment so i guess it would be the equivalent of Uh, interfering in the market to try to bring insurance premiums low enough to make everybody be covered by health insurance as opposed to just directly covering everybody. If that's the analogy, then I suppose the MMT's idea would be where you have unemployment, the solution should be to hire the unemployed, not to just ramp up government spending somewhere else and hope that it trickles through the market to manifest in a lower unemployment rate. So I think, I think most MMT people would say that those sorts of Keynesian policies were not exactly what they're recommending because basically had an, an attempt to deal with unemployment by ramping up aggregate demand by just increasing government spending generally. But I guess because there's an implicit view in MMT that the market's not particularly efficient at allocating what it gets from government spending, you end up with a situation where you're spending more and hoping that that will manifest in a lower unemployment rate, that people will you know, use the increase in demand to hire up the unemployed, but it might not happen because of all sorts of market rigidities. Whereas the MMT solution is, well, you can circumvent the market by just hiring the unemployed directly as a government, then you don't need to worry about whether an increase in demand will manifest in asset price inflation or something else as opposed to using up spare capacity because you're just directly using the spare capacity. An analogy might be between trying to get the whole population covered by medical insurance. Um, One way you could do it is by trying to intervene in the market, by trying to push premiums down low enough and another way of course would be like what you do in the UK just have the government actually insure everybody. I suppose the, the MMT idea there is that direct action always works better in the case of unemployment.
1: So we might see then in the, say, the 70s, there might be, say, employment, unemployment is taken up and the government tries to throw money into general government spending. But for whatever reasons, people say perhaps don't consume as much so that the slack is not taken up by the private sector. People might save their money for some reason or other or pay down debt. So that direct transmission is not a guaranteed success like say a job guarantee that's what we're trying to say
0: well i I mean it's it's possibly or another thing you could have is um where you don't have sufficient flexibility in the labor market if the government increases its demand you know well if the market worked properly you should have uh, an uptake in unused labor capacity but instead if you have unions controlling wages and things like that then you might just end up pushing up the wages of unionized labor and not doing anything for the unemployed so it'd be like if you ran a buffer stock policy for housing or something but instead of getting new houses built you ended up just pushing up the prices of houses that are already there
1: fair enough it's not a s- simple direct mechanism we probably would still see some demand side from people but it's an indirect thing and it's dependent on market rigidities it's not as direct as say going out and employing people who are unemployed that's right yeah how do you understand, as an MMT person, the crisis, say, of the seventies, with say the inflationary crisis, and, and could MMT have done something different?
0: Okay, well, I mean, I should say I'm not. I don't know if I'm exactly an MMT person. I, I I like the framing that MMT gives for understanding things like debt and government borrowing um because I think it's freer of assumptions, and we can talk about that a bit later if you like. than then the the neoclassical models that you get. And I'm not an economist, so I you know, don't speak with any expertise here. But I think the, the difference would be, you know, Hyman Minsky wrote this series of articles during that period, which have been published in a volume called uh, Ending Poverty, Jobs, Not Growth. It's edited by Randall Ray, where, where he was saying, no, these, these demand management strategies that the government was using in the 70s were misguided precisely because they didn't directly target unemployment. In other words, you had the government just increasing its spending across the board generally, hoping that that would stimulate reduction in the unemployment rate, but instead it just manifested as higher non-salaried income for pensioners and other people who who shouldn't have been the primary beneficiaries of the government program. So, I mean, I I suppose if you see Minsky as a kind of early MMT person, his idea was it would have worked much better if you had had big fiscal expansion but all targeted at Hiring people who are out of work, as opposed to just spending in general and hoping that it trickle down somehow.
1: So, say we had the oil price shocks, and so we had a general increase in the in the cost of production. I suppose is one way to look at it. This became like a a, a long pulse into the economy of inflation. At, at that time, then you know we had these Keynesian policies kind of break down because the idea before was that if unemployment was high you could fiscal spend and it wouldn't create inflation and now we had inflation and high unemployment in 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 a in a case where we have like an inflationary crisis like that that's not endemic to the system that's something uh, a kind of external what what does that mean then for say the policies of mmt if we have a job guarantee still in say in place and there suddenly is a massive boost of inflation what can we expect an MMT thing to do differently?
0: Right. Well, I mean, I, I suppose the the MMT control on inflation is entirely fiscal, right? Because the you don't have central bank policy at all, really. I think that the the orthodoxy is you just keep the bank rate at zero all the time. So any excess demand you deal with by taxing. So the idea should be that you should have a government moving into surplus when you have inflationary, moving at least towards surplus when you have inflationary pressure. You just increase taxes until you've uh, cut out whatever excess demand is driving the inflation. And Stagflation is a very tricky case because, you know, on one hand you seem to have a shortage of demand and on the other hand you seem to have an excess of demand at the same time. So clearly that's some sort of structural issue. Well, at least the MMT story would be that that's a structural issue.
1: Structural in what sense?
0: Somehow the market isn't distributing the demand to where it needs to go. So you have too much demand in one place and you have too little demand in another place. Um, the shortage of demand is causing unemployment and the excess of demand is causing inflation. But, you know, if you had a market that was in some sort of general equilibrium, you shouldn't have that. Right? The market should just allocate the demand, the excess demand to wherever the shortage of demand is.
1: But you could you can imagine the case where, say, like an oil crisis happens, say, if there is stuff about like peak oil is correct. And we start seeing, you know, reductions in good quality oil coming on online on to the world market that we'll see like, you know. People want the oil, but it's going to cost them more. So it's not like there's a, a structural problem within the economic setup, say, of an individual country, say the US, for example. It's a commodity that's inflated due to scarcity. And, you know, in, in a scenario like that, what what we would see would be because people have to spend more money on their oil, there's going to be less production, say, for example, in a country, more than likely. So there's going to be less general products available for everybody in that country and we'll have inflation and at the same time what the mmt solution would say would be to tax to control the inflation which would be say for example a further reduction in the living standards for the general public does that make sense
0: yes i think so i mean again you know i'm I'm not an economist but i'm just trying to channel what the the MMT view on this would be. I mean, I suppose that the general Keynesian tradition in which MMT works, yeah. you know, the, the mystery there is why something like an oil shock should be inflationary rather than just a relative price thing. So, you know, if if I have a monopoly on some commodity and I raise a price very high, then, you know, you'll I'll, you'll be above your market equilibrium price. There'll be a shortage of that commodity. The price will be higher than it should be and that should just be a relative price thing in other words the the price of that commodity relative to everything else should be up but why why that should lead to a general price increase that seems like a complicated story it's clearly something to do with how ubiquitous oil is in production you know i mean the near the neoclassical understanding would be that the production shift away from oil intensive techniques in that case because you can reduce the the marginal cost of producing stuff by shifting away from the most expensive component in production. But for whatever reason, maybe that doesn't happen. I should say that the, the neoclassical story about innovation is quite different from that. I don't think it is a, a structural thing on their story.
1: What do they say, do you think?
0: Well, I, th- I think that this might not be orthodoxy, but something like this is, is a fairly standard view that w- what happened in the 70s was not a structural thing as such. The problem was that the fiscal authority which was charged with controlling inflation, which, I mean, you know, the fiscal authority had control of the interest rate at that point, basically. The problem was because it was democratically elected, it couldn't work properly through the expectations channel. So it couldn't convince people that it was really going to be serious about attacking inflation. And so people's inflation expectations went up. And then when people's inflation expectations go up, people raise their prices in anticipation. And you can't beat that spiral. So the logic behind independent central banks is you have a an authority that's not subject to democratic control which has complete credibility if it works properly has complete credibility in controlling inflation so people's expectations don't
1: that was a handy maneuver um <laughs> yeah so, so the reason why i get to this stuff about say say something like the oil crisis is because like it seems to me that in in that period where you've got say for example less production probably because more is being spent on say a certain key commodity like oil or whatever that commodity might be Maybe in the future, it might be some kind of a rare earth metal or something like this. At that stage, then, in, in you will have less production. So much more of a nation's output will have to be on purchasing oil from an oil producing nation. So you've got a reduction in the amount of goods being created in that country, which is essentially like not in money terms but in output terms is probably like a wage cut for most people and then to control the the inflation on the other side you're taxing more so you're going kind to of going to double cut on people and it seems to me that in a situation like that that leads to not a technical problem with MMT but with a political problem.
0: Yeah I mean I, I suppose that's right the theoretical puzzle is why and increase in the price of oil controlled by, you know, a cartel that isn't subject to market forces should have an inflationary consequence, I guess. And, and until we've got a, a convincing story on that, it's hard to know what the right policy solution would be. Because um, logically, I think in, in um, John Kenneth Galbraith's book on money, he says that what happened during the oil shock was not an inflation, it was a deflation. After all, the people who are selling the oil are generally very wealthy, and so you're transferring income from people who are more likely to spend it, namely poorer people, to people who are less likely to spend it. You know, all the oil cartels who, who are just kind of saving all these petrodollars. So, so the effect should be deflationary in that sense. It might be that prices in general go up, but only because production is so curtailed. So, that's, I mean, that's different from inflation. That's just if you if you have a, a reduction in overall production
1: and the same amount of money floating around. Yeah. That, inflation. I, yeah, that sounds to me, that's intrinsically how I understand it, whether I, that's right or wrong. That's how I've always yeah. thought about it, because it's so intrinsic to everything.
0: Yeah, so I mean, the only the only um, MMT person I know of who discusses all directly is Warren Meisler, and his view is, well, one thing you could do... Um, by the way, his view of what happened in the 70s was that the inflation was killed not by any policies of the Federal Reserve, in fact, he thinks the Federal Reserve made it worse, but by the release of natural gas by Carter. And just Carter didn't get the credit for it because um, the order to release all of the reserves of natural gas was given, um, but it, it took so long to kind of be implemented and manifest that Carter had already lost the election by the time that, that actually worked. So Reagan and Paul Volcker got the credit for killing the inflation. But uh, Mosler's view, I think, is just that, well you could control the price of oil the same way that you can control the price of everything else by buying it on contract on long term contracts instead of on the spot market if a country like the us who the oil producers especially cuz the us now has i think is basically self sufficient in terms of oil you know if if it said we're only going to buy oil on long term contracts the same way we buy wheat the same way you know the chinese government will go to canada and say this is the amount of uh, meat or Know, wheat or whatever we're going to buy over the next 10 years what's the price that you'll give us or what's the price profile that you'll give us but for some reason oil is this one commodity that gets bought on the spot market which I mean is really quite weird like when you you know I drive past the petrol station every day and I just have to look and see what the price is I don't have to go to the supermarket and see what the price of milk is today. It might change gradually over time but it's not just every day there's a different there's a different price so there is something strange going on with oil.
1: It's very unlike any other commodity, the bread or milk, like you're saying. They don't oscillate every day of the week.
0: Yeah, I was going to say there'd be riots in the street, but I mean, you know, our population seems to be more tolerant than I had imagined. But you know, it would be it would be very confronting for people if they had to just go to the supermarket and see what the prices were every day of the ordinary staples they're buying. But it is like that with oil, and we just sort of accept it.
1: The reason I'm focusing in on this is so much because myself and Derek were talking about M and and Marx. And it kind of reduce our 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 kind of discordance or disagreements, reduced down to this idea of is m m t stable, both domestically when something like that, like what we're saying happened like a 1970s type thing, and also internationally, so say for example if if the whole world is doing m m t policies and then somebody else tries to do say a neoliberal policy will they have an advantage under that type of system? What are your thoughts on that?
0: Right. Well, I, I, I couldn't quite follow Derek's argument for why a full employment policy should necessarily be inflationary. In other words, I know the Marxist argument for that. I know the neoclassical argument, which is effectively that if you're trusting the fiscal authority to maintain a certain target, or so like maintain unemployment at at the real lowest possible rate you can have without accelerating inflation, whatever that is, you run out of credibility because it might be that, okay, so the, the, the deal is right now the government hires all the unemployed. You know, right now we've got quite a, a deflationary situation, a very low inflation situation. The government will hire all the unemployed. And the idea is that when inflationary pressure builds up the government will release workers out of the out of public employment and make them available in the private sector and that'll put a some downward pressure on private wages and check the inflation in that way well i think the neoclassical response to that would be the fiscal authority doesn't have enough credibility people wouldn't don't believe that the government will really release its workers during the the tough times in the same way that when the government controlled interest rates people didn't believe that the government would actually crank the rates up high enough to kill off an inflationary boom because it was it would be such a you know such a cruel confronting policy so there's you know what's what's called time inconsistency you can make a promise to do something that will be difficult in the future but it will only have the effect of preventing you know, the unintended outcome if people really believe that you're going to do it if you you can say that you won't pay the kidnappers but you know the kidnappers have to believe that you actually won't pay them in the future for that to actually prevent them from from kidnapping, it's the same sort of thing. So I, you know, I understand that argument. You know, there's various things you can say about I, that.
1: I'm not so sure if if Derek was saying that maybe he was at the start saying it was necessarily inflationary, but I think he he's kind of the the big disagreement we had was whether it was he might have said that, but I'm not sure. um Is that in the crisis that the system becomes, say, unstable? Like the the reason why I think there is something to this is that if we look at say what the politics now is of the left. And it mirrors quite closely what the politics of the left was. Say so it's not as radical, but but uh, for kind of Keynesian policies that occurred after the Great Depression in the nineteen thirties, and we see the same pressure to put these on. That we, you know, we see this kind of cyclical nature of things. And you know, some people talk about Kondratiev waves and things like that. Whether they exist or whether that's just noise, who knows? But you know, so it, it seems to me that the same political pressures. That existed to get Keynesian policies now exist, but it seems what what I find difficult to hold with with MMT is that w- whether it can ride out a crisis.
0: Right, I mean, I suppose the view would be, you know, I think Warren's Twitter handle is just his his slogan, which is "There's no financial crisis so big that a sufficiently big fiscal expansion can't take care of it," or something like that. And he calls that Mosler's law. So. One thing you could worry about as well, you know, Mosley's law becomes a, a sort of uh, historical inevitability that leads towards an increasing encroachment of the state into the private sector. I'm not sure if this, if this is Derek's point, but you might think, well, look, th- there's always going to be financial crises. And if, if the only solution to every financial crisis is to expand the public sector to, you know, absorb excess capacity, then you're just going to creep more and more towards a a larger and larger public sector yeah
1: something like an inflationary crisis is not really uh that's not really a financial crisis though
0: no well i mean okay okay. i I thought you were talking about a, a, a financial crisis
1: well no i i mean both you know i just i just mean whatever that crisis may be you know it wasn't necessarily a big financial crisis in the 70s so much as an inflationary crisis and i suppose a bit of a profitability crisis but not so much a a financial crisis that led to the downfall of things it's more it seems to be right. the financial crisis of the 30s and then and the 2000s that seems to have brought the keynesian policies back to the table
0: well i mean i guess if if your view is that you can have crises in both directions you know you can have a, a kind of shortage of aggregate demand crisis and you can have an excess of aggregate demand crisis then maybe those will balance out so if you have the government always expanding you know during uh, tight periods and always contracting during inflationary periods then maybe you don't have this this tendency towards increasing encroachment of the, the public sector i don't know
1: so another person had dealt with i think we might have talked i'm not sure if we talked about it the last time we were speaking was was michael kaleski he had his i did this paper a very good read called political aspects of full employment where he talks about say, uh, the implications for class dynamics. The idea that as the state becomes more important and underlines the the power of the private sector, that the private sector will essentially fight back to get rid of these full employment type policies. Like, Like how we discussed the last time about how class and power is so intrinsically linked To MMT and the control of the state currency, the the weakness of MMT is ironically this other class battling the use of the state currency.
0: I think so. I mean, I I think that's absolutely right, and I think that's a very powerful and worrying line of critique. Um, I mean, you know, ultimately, I suppose MMT, as far as I understand, is a kind of extension of. The Keynesian view or development of the Keynesian view that you can keep uh, capitalism viable as long as you have the right macroeconomic policy in place. And we should take seriously the possibility that Koletsky raises that the the threat of unemployment is fundamentally necessary to maintaining the power relations between labour and capital. So as soon as you take away the ability of the private sector to discipline workers with the threat of unemployment and you know well, we don't let the unemployed starve anymore but we do make the situation pretty close to intolerable if that threat is no longer there if everybody is guaranteed you know the opportunity to earn a living wage in some way or another you know, will will this system even be able to cope and it's a deep sort of sociological question but i think it's one that should be taken seriously definitely so something else i wanted to
1: to touch on Alex, was this idea of accounting identities. Can you describe what these are and what the power of them are?
0: Right, I mean I I don't think they are particularly powerful for grounding any sort of argument about how the economy works but I mean one critique moderate critique I would have of the some MMT literature is that, and I I don't mean by the kind of key figures in the MMT but the sort of thing that you get through the blogosphere is this idea that uh, if you hold, say, the the mainstream neoclassical view of how the economy works, you must be violating some straightforward accounting identity. I just don't think that's right. I'm trying to think of a a relatively straightforward example. So one thing that you get in some macroeconomics textbooks, I think Greg Mangue's macroeconomics textbook has this, you have this idea of national savings. And so the idea is... If the government runs a surplus, then it builds up a reserve of national savings, which can then fuel investment. And I guess the MMT, well, not just the MMT critique, but one critique that people make of this is it it gives a misleading picture of what's actually going on, because that makes it sound like the government taxes more than it spends, and it takes the excess money that it taxes and puts it in a piggy bank somewhere, and then that piggy bank is then available for future government investment or Something like that. Well, you know, if you work through the accounting identities, it can't be right that if the only things you change are how much you're taxing or, you you know, you keep tax rates the same and you spend less, there should also be a change in income, or at least it's possible for there to be a change in income. You might just reduce income, in which case you don't end up saving anymore. It's just Keynesian paradox of thrift kind of thing. So in order for the government's savings to be higher, the private sector's debt needs to increase. Right. So, you know, if, if, if anyone, including the government, is earning more than it's spending, somebody else has to be spending more than they're earning. And this is something that MMT people kind of throw out as, as though it's some sort of refutation of the neoclassical view. And I don't think it really is. I mean, the point is, look, um, if you have a working assumption that when the government reduces its net spending, in other words, when it spends less or taxes more, it then clears space in the economy. There are then resources that it's no longer claiming, which if you have a very sanguine view about market efficiency, quickly absorb those newly released resources. So private investment will increase uh, automatically if government investment reduces. It'll just automatically take up the slack. Or if you don't think it's automatic, you can at least think that with a sensible central bank doing the right thing, the central bank will just cut the interest rates to the level where they need to be. So there are a whole lot of assumptions you need to ground that story, that the accounting identity itself tells you the story is wrong.
1: One thing that uh, both, I think both Keynesian and M&T people put forward is that using these identity equations, that you can show that it's investment that drives profits and not the Marxist view of profits driving investment. Can you talk about this a little
0: so, I think I had a slogan in my book that was something like, um, trust sponsors greed, greed spurs production. So, my idea there was if, if you just forget about these kind of intertemporal equilibrium ideas that you have in standard economics, that, you know, any, any, any time anybody's earning money, it's because they're already placing future orders for stuff they want to buy. You just deal with the, you know, who knows whether that's true. Who knows whether people are that rational. You just deal with the fact that there are clearly people who just want to increase their, asset footprint they just want to hold more and more and more financial assets well again for somebody to earn more than they spend somebody else has to spend more than they earn and that requires trust I mean what you need to have is lending institutions that will extend credit to people at a high enough level for the other people to be earning what they like and so you know that's that's how it's the sort of monetary theory of production that I was trying to convey but in terms of the Marxist view, you might have to run me through the argument about profit there. Well, but I don't know. What I will say is, um, you know, Kolecki had this slogan as well, um, which was that under a capitalist system, uh, capitalists earn what they spend, whereas workers spend what they earn. And the idea was that when you have capitalists increasing investment, in doing so, they also increase their own profits, and that you know you should you should see the accounting identity running in that direction for capitalists. And for workers, it's the opposite. Workers spend more when they earn more, but they don't. They can't make themselves earn more by spending more.
1: Well, if you believe in demand management policies, you would probably think that if workers spend more, they earn more too.
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess that's the idea. Is you know, workers might not be able to organise to make uh, large investment in order to support aggregate demand in a way that will then trickle down to higher incomes for themselves. But the government can. They can through the, the fiscal authority.
1: I think the idea then of the Marxist way of looking at it is that, which to me makes sense, is that, you know, as an individual capitalist, you have to realise your profit before you can reinvest. So you might invest first in your business, but then you have to wait till the profits are realised in some in some way, maybe you've got credit going or, or something, but you kind of have to wait for profit to be realized before you can invest. And the amount you can invest is a function of your profit that you take out of the profit as a capitalist. I have a business selling cars, you know, my profit at the end of the year is 100,000 and maybe I'll Spend fifty thousand of that, and then the rest of the fifty thousand I'll use for expansion, or you know, building a nicer office, or or whatever the hell it is. That it it the, the the time of it, this kind of temporal thing is that it's it's the profits uh, determine what the next investment will be. So if I make a loss this year, I'm not going to invest a whole lot next year. I see. Yeah. So so what we get when we look at identities, these uh, simple. Uh, equations which show like income and spending for the government and the private sectors and uh, and exports is that the identity way we, we see that it's the capitalist that, dis, that can decide what the profit level is dependent on his investment if I'm correct in understanding that. Right. Well the Marxists would say that the investment is actually dependent on the profit.
0: Right okay I see. So The accounting identities from the national accounting identities, you can derive Koletsky's profit equation, and I won't say too much about that, I think they're in my book, that's another plug. Um, (laughs) But the, the key point is that investment is a term in the profit identity. So they're linked in such a way that greater investment, other things being equal, manifests as greater profit, and greater profit, other things being equal, manifests as higher investment. Because that's an accounting identity, there's no causation there, it doesn't tell you which is driving which. It's just a kind of reciprocal determination, and so the yeah the the accounting identity doesn't tell you the answer to the, the question that you have, which is which comes first.
1: I, I think I'm right in saying this that I have heard that that it is investment that drives profits. Profits are a function of investment, and not the other way around. In the Keynesian MMT literature, I'm sure I've read that many times.
0: Yeah, I think I I, I think you're probably right. I, I do that at least is is suggested. And that's not straightforward, I and mean, it's not straightforwardly clear why that should be true. So, um, you know, during a credit boom, you have lots of what looks like investment, but it never manifests as profit because, you know, instead you get a financial crisis, or you just get rising asset prices, or something. You don't get higher profits for the the productive sector of the economy at all. So, you know, there's something there's something in the the critique that no, you know you should you should think about profit as determining investment at least profit in the productive sector as determining investment in the productive sector rather than the other way around but I guess that you know the thing to not be confused by is if you don't understand how finance works you might be inclined to think well of course uh, of course capitalists have to earn a profit because before they they make their investments because you know they need to to have the money there to out and
1: the credit system can also, you know, it will take it over. But if if you're, you know, if the if the profits are looking bad, you're not going to get that credit. I suppose that's what a Marxist would say.
0: That's right. And you do you do need to have collateral to, to borrow against in most cases. So you know you do need to hold some sort of assets before you can can borrow to invest, unless you have a very credible business plan. It's perfect. It's, it's certainly mechanically possible to walk into a bank and have such a good business idea that they'll just extend you a loan with, with no securitization.
1: That's if, you're, if your business plan includes pointing a gun.
0: <laughs> yeah, in that case, yeah.
1: And I never thought, you know,
0: yeah, when people rob banks, they never ask the banks to extend them loans. They just take their cash. And I think the average haul from a bank robbery is something like 2,000 US dollars. They do a lot better if they ask the bank to credit up their accounts. It maybe doesn't
1: work way. Like There's a guy in the small town where I come from, and he, well, he's from close there, and he uh, got sent to prison for a few years for robbing a post office with the leg of a chair.
0: Wow. <laughs> Well, disguising it as
1: a weapon, or just no, I don't think so. And the staff knew him as well; they knew him by name, even his disguise was so bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, but I do think there is a problem with the with the Marxist view as well, because if we look, think about, say, government spending as as investment, that doesn't rely on any type of profit, right? Yeah. So you have this kind of, you know, weird dichotomy of public investment versus private investment. Much like you have public spending versus private spending.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely. I mean, so probably the easiest way to think about it is is the government is like a, a capitalist, but with a captive market. So if I get out a bank loan and start producing some product and nobody buys a product, I'll never realize the profit to finance my loan. But if the government invests a lot of money in building swimming pools... Uh, and nobody wants the swimming pools but can tax people anyway you can say look you've all got to pay swimming pool tax because we've we've built all these swimming pools for <laughs> you so government the government's investments always come good in, in that sense
1: it's, it's interesting so we like we have problems so so from the marxist traditional orthodox marxist viewpoint that i have certainly read and the people the Marxists i respect the way they talk about government debt they there is a you know a problem there i think for the understanding but also for for their understanding of profits and what drives profits, because government investment can drive profits. And also for then on, on the other side, then we have problems for the Keynesian understanding that, all, that says investment drives profits. Well, really, it's this weird combination of two separate streams of private and government.
0: I think that has to be right. Yeah. I mean, that has to be right. But the, the Marxist story is, is told in real terms. So, in financial terms, of course, it's possible for the government to just guarantee a certain rate of profit for General Motors, let's say. Because, you know, it can just say in any shortfall that you make, we'll just uh, make up for you and we'll tax as necessary to, to supply that. And, you know, we'll just keep that cycle going for as long as we like. But in terms of real profits, It's certainly possible that in doing that, yes, you can realize a kind of nominal profit for general motors. But if the rest of the economy is falling apart and it's becoming less and less productive, then the purchasing power of that money profit is going to fall. So I guess the Marxist story is more more about whether capitalists can maintain a steady level of profit in real terms.
1: So in terms of a stable currency value relative to other
0: currencies yeah that or, or you know it's just, just will they be able to consume some given level of real resources out of their their retained earnings or you know consume or, or, or command some given level of real resources
1: yeah that, that was something that we we discussed with derek where i, I kind of came to this uh, i don't know if i came to it but um we um discussed this idea of the ability to maintain profits like you're just like you're talking but if your economy is not being efficiently run what will happen is your profits for these individual companies will stay reasonably good and they'll stay solvent but their efficiency will drop and from a Marxist point of view looking at it would you would say that the average amount of labor value that is contained in say one dollars worth of production is dropping that's right yeah you keep your profit rate up but you'll realize it in the falling rate of your currency versus another international currency
0: that's right i mean yeah that that would for i think for an orthodox marxist that would be a decline in the real rate of profit so uh, but but i i've never been entirely sure because you're measuring this measuring resources in this absolute unit right so it's like there, there's supposed to be some unit like kilograms of output except it's it's you know a, a unit of value um if the amount of value in whatever value unit is produced every year is falling but you're commanding through your profit a, a fixed a percentage of it so you know you you always command 10% of the total amount of value but the total amount of value is falling from year to year i'm not i just i, I don't know enough about marxism to know if that would count as a falling rate of profit or not
1: the big thing I think in Marxist, I think it's volume three, is that the total amount of value in the system is equal, total prices is equal to the total value. Okay. So that there are accounting identities on the global level. This is something I, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to talk to a Marxist about this to make sure that's a question
0: for another show <laughs> yeah I think it probably is but for now I guess what I what I could say is um, because I don't really understand this idea of a unit of value I find it hard to to pass these sorts of thoughts but it certainly seems like if you could fix some unit of value it might very well turn out to be true that there's a tendency of the rate of profit to fall in those real terms and you know all, all the kind of uh, financial information you have about the the level of investment in money terms and all of that you know that that might just not be relevant.
1: Well, uh, Alex, thanks very much for coming on the show today.
0: No, thank you, Tom.
1: On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures by Sunra and his orchestra, and you are now listening to another Sunra track, song number 1. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.